This is Eric Jochensthaler. I'm the author of The Indirection Field, the revolutionary new way to create shared value for business, customers, and society. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Toll! <laughs> Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Eric Jochumstaller to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Interaction Field, The Revolutionary New Way to Create Shared Value for Businesses, Customers, and Society, published by Public Affairs, an imprint of Perseus Books, a subsidiary of Hachette. Eric Jochumstaller is the founder and CEO of Vivaldi, one of the largest independent global strategy and business transformation firms with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. He has lectured and held faculty positions at many of the world's leading business schools, including Harvard Business School, Yale, Columbia, Dartmouth, University of Southern California, University of Virginia, and Duke. He is the author and co-author of more than 100 articles published in highly respected journals, as well as two award-winning books, Brand Leadership, Building Assets in an Information Economy, and Hidden in Plain Sight, How to Find and Execute Your Company's Next Big Growth Strategy. Eric has been featured in USA Today, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and on CNBC, among others, and he writes regularly for Harvard Business Review. And in 2017, he was voted a top 25 influencer of chief digital officers, and he was inducted as the 2017 fellow of the IASBM Institute for his lifetime contribution in academics, thought leadership, and practice in B2B marketing strategy and digital innovation. And interesting fact he is originally from the ancient spa town of Baden-Baden, Germany. Eric, <laughs> congratulations on the interaction field and herzlich willkommen to the Marketing oh, Book Podcast. Danke, danke, Douglas. That is a mouthful of all of these things. It embarrasses me. Is that what you do to uh, participants here, to, to authors? You embarrass them first about their accomplishments or lack thereof? Well, they, I, there's nothing here that's, that's in, uh, embarrassing. I'm just excited to be able to interview <laughs> over 300 interviews, and you're only the second author I've interviewed originally from Germany. And uh, as we were talking about before we started recording, I lived in Germany for three years, and I've forgotten probably all of my uh, German. Although as I drink German beer, a lot of it starts to come back to me. Well, that's not really it true. Happens. Yeah, It happens for all the Germans. You know, The more they drink, the better they get in the language. Yeah. So actually, I, when I drink German beer, it doesn't really improve my German, but it improves my perception of my German. And I think that's very important. So... You do what you can, and I am the king of stupid questions. Before we go further, I have to ask a question and ask you to explain what is uh, value, because the subtitle to your book is the, new, the Revolutionary New Way to Create Shared Value. And in case there's just one person out, here, out there that doesn't understand what that means, I mean, they, they could be thinking value. Does that mean a cheap product or something? It's not at all it is. It, explain, explain what is meant by creating value. 
Yeah. You know, like years ago, value, when companies talked about we create value, then they said that we're creating a better car. BMW says we create the ultimate driving machine. BMW, Mercedes, and Audi says we are not just creating your car. We create a premium luxury experience. Uh, and that, that used to be the game. You know, we are better washing machine. We have better TVs. We have better, faster, cheaper. That was sort of the game. And, and people have needed that. You know, we needed cars. We needed washing machines, houses, and all these things. But I think today, consumers don't look at uh, uh, another uh, buying just cars. They, w- they look for something else. They want mobility solutions uh, or mobility. They want to solve for mobility. Uh, you don't want to buy a gift anymore and say, like, I buy flowers for my wife or, or beloved ones in the, for, for an occasion. You want to please somebody, uh, you, uh, express your feelings about somebody else. So the, so the game is changing uh, uh, and has changed the consumers have changed and value now means solving for something for consumers solving something much bigger it's it's not about a better cancer drug as i write in my book it's about how do i how do you enable uh, uh, me living with with a cancer condition let's say i have and or maybe survive the typical uh, expectation so so i think the game is changing now and value creation isn't something just by pushing out a product, but by actually uh, uh, solving sort of a significant uh, challenge for consumers or for bus- businesses and industry or society. Great. Thank you for that. And I just want to quote from uh, the beginning of the book here. We'll read one excerpt. For most of my career, which spans four decades, the conventional wisdom about a company's ability to create value was that it comes in the form of competitive advantage, differentiation, and growth, usually evaluated in terms of tangible assets, revenue, and profit. In today's digital age, characterized not only by networks, but by data-driven technologies, including artificial intelligence, machine learning, and soon quantum computing, we have to think differently about how businesses create value. The interaction field describes a new phenomenon that is just emerging and can be glimpsed in a handful of wildly successful companies such as Alibaba, Apple, Netflix, Google, and Amazon. It can also be found in some traditional businesses from farming to fashion. Interaction field companies thrive on the participation and value creation by many different groups. The company itself, its customers, suppliers, partners, and other stakeholders, as well as other entities you might not expect to see in the mix, such as competitors, observers, independent researchers, and government agencies. By participating in these interconnected groups, interaction field companies can achieve a kind of unstoppable momentum and wild expansion that I call velocity. It is a new form of multidimensional, constantly accelerating, explosive, and smart growth that goes far beyond the traditional measures of sales increase, profit, or market capitalization. So Eric, our kids are about the same age. They're in their early 20s. And I recently took my daughter, Emma, to Manhattan because she just yep. started a, a sales job there. She's just out of college. Mm-hmm. And I lived there for many years and uh, left there about uh, 20, 25 years ago. And it was interesting to go back. I'd been back once or twice, but it, I went back this time just to drop my daughter off. And then, yep. and then I was no longer needed once I gave her some money, as you can imagine. <laughs> So one thing that I noticed that was different uh, is that um, the the avenues were smaller, okay? Now, part of that is because of the pandemic where restaurants are now uh, allowed to set up some tables out in the street inside a barrier so they can have outdoor dining. But the other thing that I was not there when I lived there in the 90s was this bike lane. And there's a bike lane on all these major boulevards. And generally, the bikes are going faster than the cars. Yes. So as I was there for just two days, I was dropping her off. We were about to cross a street and there was a red light. So we were able to cross and the cars were stopping. And she was a little bit ahead of me. And a bicyclist, as happened many, many times, came barreling through, ran right through the red light, was about to hit her. I reached up, grabbed her collar and pulled her back and the bike just kept going. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me and the listener what that story has to do with velocity, as you explain in your book about bikes and buses. Yes. I was, uh, I used that analogy because 
because the I looked at the bus as a an existing business, an existing company, and uh, and when you have an existing business, an existing company, you have a factory or you have a retail store, you have invested in a lease, you decorated your let's say a retail store, you 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 have commitments to employees, and and what happens is that and the and the bike lane, the bike example in my in the first chapter of the book, is there comes a company around that doesn't have that, that doesn't have a factory, that uh, uh, doesn't have a retail presence, that hasn't invested in a lease uh, or, or signed up for a 10-year lease, uh, that hasn't really employees and actually passes you uh, and with, a, with a power that, that, that causes the, the same harm that, uh, that uh, 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 a, a, a truck can or a bus can do. And, and, and if you think of New York, you know, think of this, you know, but one of the things that uh, an immigrant coming to the New York, one of the first jobs many immigrants has done is, is they drive taxis. And for in order to drive a taxi, you needed to buy a license called a medallion license. Then you need to take tests, you know, road tests and, and, and all of these things. And, 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 and as an immigrant, you had to figure out, you know, you had to memorize all the, the streets and all these things. And you had a, you get a license and all of these. And things. wasn't the medallion, uh, Several hundred thousand dollars at its oh, highest million. price. A million. The value was the, the medallions used to auction away for over a million, million point three. Uh, so, so as a, as a, when you start as an immigrant, let's say you couldn't get a medallion taxis. There, there were others who had medallion taxis. Michael Cohen, the the, the associated with uh, the Trump administration, he was actually owner of many of these uh, medallion taxis. Uh, the, the, but as a, as an immigrant, what you would do is, is you would drive for someone who had a taxi and who had a medallion license. But, you know, there are 13,000 out there right now. Where there used to be 13,000 on the average. They never changed. 13,000 of these taxis. And guess what? If you look at it today, today you don't have 13,000. You have 13,000 plus 88,000 other cars out there uh, called Ubers and Lyfts. And you know what's so interesting? Those drivers don't have the same driver's tests, they don't oftentimes own actually the car. The Uber or Lyft doesn't own the car. Um, they are not employees, so they're not, a, they're not they, they don't have to buy a license. All they get is a mobile phone from Uber, buy a mobile phone and, and download a software. So, so, the, so without assets, even Uber doesn't own the cars, right? Uh, suddenly, Uber has now and Uber Lyft together have eighty-eight thousand cars out there competing with thirteen thousand uh, medallion taxis, and and, and and they've driven down the value of a medallion oh, tremendously. It's, it's a painful. I have the charts on those. How painful it is. Um, so that's really that's what is what that's that new sort of competition and and uh, and it has caused a lot of challenges. You know, the taxi drivers hate uh, hate uh, uh, Uber taxi Uber drivers because for a number of reasons they oftentimes they don't know they don't know the rules of how do you how do you stop in a, in a lane how do you let let passengers uh, uh, out of your car they just stop in the middle of the street. There is actually a congestion that you may have seen when you were here, Douglas, that you haven't had seen before. You know, it's harder. Every The, the license plate have, begins with a T and begins uh, ends with a C. If you go on a street today, uh, the license plate for those Uber and, and Lyft drivers, you notify, you notice, everybody knows them because it starts with T and ends with a C. Um, and people, and you see more T and more of those than you see taxis on the road. Oh, interesting. Here. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize yeah. that. So the taxis could be like, the buses, in your analogy, and right. the uh, the bicycles are yep. like the uh, like the Uber and the Lyfts. And so, I have a friend in, in in New Jersey who 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 is a family is an Italian immigrant who built actually a mil a thousand of these taxis. He lo he lost his entire his entire wealth that he has created oh has been wiped out just on on on, on this sort of scenario it's he had a thousand he had a thousand, a thousand medallions? medallions yeah wow. he was a really yeah, so a interesting at, fellow, at one yeah. point that would have been worth about a billion dollars right there oh yes right there he yeah. was incredibly well, wealthy before we go oh. into some of the the 
the key terms from the interaction field, I want to mention yep. something that's at the very end of the book, which I think will get the listener <laughs> interested or frightened. You know, and, and one of them, you write that McKinsey predicts that $60 trillion in revenue, or roughly 30% of all global revenues, will be accounted for by interaction field style ecosystems by 20. Yes. 25. Yeah. So let's step back for just a minute there and talk about this connected world we're in. And you you describe there's three eras of development and the third of which we're starting into now. Yes. Yeah. See, I, um, I, when I came to the U.S. 95, um, um, I, at that time there was this, there were these Google guys out there called Sergio Brim and Larry Page, some two PhDs that, that, that worked on their doctoral thesis. And they said that there is this internet out there, but you can't find anything on the internet. But if we could create a, this, this technology called a search engine, um, we could actually connect, we could actually, because the Inda connects information or websites, you could actually find stuff on the internet. And that was, that was about 95. To me, this is the first era where something connected, namely the internet. There was the first era and Google came up with a technology called search. And then there was this one guy somewhere in Seattle up there. And this guy says, well, you know, if on one side is information or one consumer or one website, and on the other side is another website with information. Maybe I can put books on that website and then I could start some, a new technology called e-commerce. And, and that became Amazon, of course, as you well know. And that was the first wave of connectivity where basically information connects to information or in some cases also books and then it becomes other things. And then what happens is that's 1995 and, 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 and Google became the dominant search engine. There were 12 others and, and Amazon, uh, uh, competed. Then in around 2007, 2009, 2004, in those days that the second era started and, and it wasn't about connecting information or website. It was about connecting people. And then there was Friendster, and then there was MySpace, and then there was at a Harvard, uh, in this Harvard uh, dorm room, there was this guy called Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who, who wanted to have a Harvard network, a Harvard Connections, I think it used to be called, which of course became Facebook. Uh, and says, we can actually find uh, 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 friends and people on the internet and connected people. And in 2009, that became some big deal when when Apple came around and says, you know, you don't need to do this on a computer. You can actually do this on a smartphone, that technology. And when that became, that's to me the second era where actually people connected. And what happened in these last years, over the last two years, at 10 years, is it's not just people or information that connects. What now is happening, and we are just in that stage, Douglas, is we are in that third wave, Internet of Things, machine learning, AI, and all of those technologies, uh, uh, cloud computing. Forget about the technology, because what it really does, it does one thing, all of them, there's one thing, and that is it connects everything. Things, companies, 24-7, anywhere, anytime, all, you know, that, and that's connectivity. It's, it's now called in the academic circles, hyper-connectivity, mm. that everything connects. And to me, that is the single biggest trend you have to think about because that's where the opportunity starts. Whether it is Uber, it is Airbnb, or what is Apple today, or some of the companies I describe, more traditional companies, they leverage that technology, that connectivity. And that is sort of where the biggest opportunities uh, are, and that's why I wrote the book. So one last thing I want to help the listener with uh, setting the stage uh, before we go crazy into the interaction field and never return is to talk about the other standard approaches to value creation. If you could just remind folks uh, what, you know, is the value chain and the platform, the other two that are out there. Yes. So the, the value chain is, has, it's been like that for the last 
hundreds of years. The first, the second, the third industrial revolution, they were all built around the idea of a value chain. And that means that, that a company, one company, needs to perform a set of activities, the way they source a product, the way they do R&D, the way they do manufacturing, the way they do marketing, the way they do sales, and the way they do customer service. That's the value chain, this sequential linear activities that you perform. And a company and a competitive advantage or value is when one company says, we are better in one or several of these things. You know, BMW says, we have German engineering. Uh, we are better engineers. We are better designers. And we have amazing marketing people that can convince Americans and other people in the world that we, only us, sell the ultimate driving machine. And, and that's differentiated. And Mercedes says, hold on. We can, we are better on technology, better on this. And, and that's the value chain business where you produce, you, you fulfill a certain functions in order to produce a better. IKEA says we can create design, uh, 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 Scandinavian design at a low price. And we perform a set of activities better and differently from competitors. And that makes IKEA IKEA. And that's a, that's a good model, but that's a well, that's a traditional way. Hundred years ago, fifty years ago, that's always been. Then what happens is this because of interactivity, these digital models started, uh, and these digital business models. And one example of that is a platform, a platform. And actually, you know, those platforms go back. The first time written about that was in 1994 by two French professors. Jean Tirole is one of them, and Rocher, Jean Rocher is another person. They wrote this obscure paper in 94 and won, uh, 2004, and in, in 2014 won the Nobel Prize on it. And they said, they said, it's not just, it's, there is actually a, 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 a platform that you can build. And, and a good example of a platform is, is actually Uber. We just mentioned that earlier. So on one side of the platform, you have riders, namely people like you and me who look for a ride to go from point A to point B, wherever you are in whatever city. And on the other side, you have another sort of group of people two-sided marketplace. There's another marketplace of drivers, you know, some uh, the, the various drivers that are almost like consumers that are part participating in sort of a community of drivers. And Uber is only matching the drivers with a rider or Lyft. That's what's called a platform. Um, there are many others. Airbnb is a platform, you know, in a way, because they say uh, Eric has a spare room in New York, uh, there's a, uh, a Douglas comes with his daughter to New York. She moves in her apartment and she doesn't want to stay with daddy. Um, uh, uh, and daddy rents in over, uh, through Airbnb a night in, in the room, in the house, in the apartment of, of Eric. And that becomes a, an, an, a, a platform transaction at Airbnb. Although, Eric, I would hope that uh, maybe now that we've kind of become acquainted, we could cut Airbnb out of the transaction here and I could just pay you directly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's their problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's the that's the platform. Okay, the value yep. creation business and the platform. Yep. Okay, now let's get into the interaction yep. field. And you write yep. that if you wish to create an interaction field company, you need to design and build the three elements yep. that constitute an interaction field. And this isn't to the listener. This isn't fair to Eric because much of the book is about this. But you need to build uh, a nucleus of participants an ecosystem of partners and contributors, and a group of market makers that exert influence on the field, all yep. of them linked through data. So please walk us through what yep. those three things are. And there's plenty of uh, examples yep. in the book that we can also talk about. Yeah. Um, you see, the platforms have their problems. We know that there are challenges. I mentioned earlier the congestion that, that the blood, that platforms create. Um, uh, and, and what I thought is, is while it's a good business model, 
you know, it's good for Uber to be Uber. But what does a, a taxi company do? What does an existing company do when they are when they already have a, a value chain, when they already have a pipeline that pushes out, let's say, a product? How how do t they take advantage of that? When I'm, what do you do when you just have a retail store and you have, you're going through the pandemic? And how do you what do you how do you use these new connectivity that everybody talks about or digital sort of tools in order? to do business so that was my interest in the book and 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 the nucleus uh, thanks for for asking that question Douglas the nucleus is what I think is and what I've seen with companies succeeding in this new world is they say I have already some existing customers and the nucleus if I need to build first in the actions the right interactions with with that nucleus, and if you think about this, there's actually that's very important. Maybe I make an example with with, a, with one company in the early chapters in the book, John Deere. They have thousands and thousands of farmers where they sell a tractor to an eight hundred thousand dollar, incredibly technology advanced tractor that is yellow and green tractor that uh, that is the pride of every farmer but it sets you back three three rolls royces more or less as a farmer imagine so eight hundred thousand dollars so that's a transaction and a and a business a value chain business and that 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 that, uh, um, that john deere has and so how do you become now an interaction field how do you create a nucleus so what John Deere has done is, is they created something they call the John Deere Open Platform, actually. That's the, the exact name they created several years ago. And what they do is, is they have convinced many farmers, not all, a lot of them, but thou thousands of farmers, they've convinced them that what if you, would you share with us the data you have and we, we put sensors on the field on a square foot level uh, that will go to square inch level at one point in time. Right now it's a square foot level. On the conditions of the soil, the, the water it is on the conditions of the, of the plant, um, uh, irrigation, how you, how you seed, uh, the, when you seed, what time of the days you seed, what time of the months and so forth. When you mow down when you harvest and all of those so there are thousands of farms that are now facilitated orchestrated by John Deere that nucleus where they where, where John Deere collects the data augments them with weather data and other data and then and, and these are daily interactions and, and more often interactions uh, that take place through these sensors on these fields and then it they feed back those data to the farmers and guess what a farmer says hey I can learn from my neighbor farm. You know, I have a farm, I have some problems over here. This, that's why. So, so farmers learn from others. So the first thing is that nucleus to say, how do we enable farmers not only to just buy a better tractor, but enable farmers to actually interact with each other and then learn from each other. And also call, and, and that's sort of the nucleus of with, with their existing customers, if you will. Right. And then it, and then we go to, uh, an ecosystem of partners yep. and contributors. Yeah. And so the ecosystem then is, you know, the traditional mindset, you know, and I know you, the traditional mindset, Douglas, that you and I learned in business school or, 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 or in, 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 in our, when we, when we say, when we're in a sales process is you say like, how can I sell better than somebody else sell? How can I, you know, I, this over there is the competition, you know, how my tractor is better than somebody else's tractor and things like that. But then when you think differently and you say, Hey, it's not about me selling more tractors. How can I, if I'm, if my mindset is, how can I make improve the pro instead of selling tractors? How can what what is the tractor really about? The tractor is a way for the farmer to improve the productivity of the field, but the tractor can only do so much. What if John Deere says, in order to improve the productivity of the farm? What if I not only share those data that I have learned, that everything I learned about the field just with other farmers? What if I you and then try to sell more tractors? What if I now invite crop companies like Monsanto or now called Bayer 
or or uh, Dow Crop Sciences, uh, fertilizer companies. And I, I invite ecosystem part partners or participants, and that's the ecosystem. And they all we all look at the same data and we say, how do we help this farmer to increase the productivity of the farm by uh, less fertilizers or more fertilizers? What crop is actually surviving under this water condition, under this uh, arid conditions, let's say, with the sun and the water? And, and the heat and the cold, if you will. And, and now we are all working together. I can even invite competitors, several fertilizer competitors. I can start creating an ecosystem like, uh, and, and that becomes the ecosystem now. Okay, but Eric, let me ask, that yeah. ecosystem could also include a John Deere competitor like Caterpillar? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we got to so, explain that because I think that's, that seems like that's a stumbling block for people. Yeah, so that's the real problem. The problem that a lot of come, a lot of uh, when you are in our in our world, we always think of competition and disruption. You know that sort of this 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 fashion world that has become overly important. I think today, twenty twenty, we are actually we are actually. Um, we are actually in a world of, and we are going from competition and disruption. That's that outmoded, outdated, geriatric way of thinking about like a, a business. Win, kind of a win-lose, total sum That's type right. of game. Mm -hmm. To a collaboration, participation, and engagement type world. For example, you know, you can when when you can actually what what John Deere does they can say okay we give this to our farmers that work with us because they are like they they trust us and so forth but much of the learning that takes place you can also give to farmers they ride on a Mahindra and Mahindra or Kobuta which is a Japanese competitor it doesn't matter and they all benefit at the end of the day remember the book title is shared value mm. It, if you share that with also competitive, competing uh, uh, farmers that compete, ultimately everybody benefits. You know, like you, you and I don't pay for Google, but somebody pays for Google. But for me and you, Google is free. It's the same principle uh, in the farming business. So in the book, actually, you know, there are Douglas. I show many examples where competitors intensively work together now and the reason why they do that is they realize is why they need to share with with uh, with 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 customers the market actually size is growing for everybody so everybody benefits interesting I, yeah. so th then then that takes us to the market makers which for me was uh uh, just uh, uh, another layer yes well no but i what i was going to say is that's the part that i i probably didn't understand as much yeah uh, See, and, and you didn't talk about it quite as yeah. much as the others but what, what are the market makers yeah so you know like the, in the world of in in the world we in many worlds we think still today in in some markets we think of now okay before Products competed and companies competed. There was this competition between companies and products. We talked about that earlier. And now the, 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 the fashion world is, is ecosystem competition. You know, Apple ecosystem competes with Android, if you will. The iOS from Apple competes with Android. And, and that's just another form of competition. But I think we need to think beyond that. If you want to, what I have found is, is right now as we speak, if we want to solve the real problems in the of, of farmers, right now, many farmers, actually small farms and large farms, but particularly small farms, are subsidized through government subsidies. The Department of Agriculture has to subsidize them because it is a difficult period of time. The pandemic has hit them extremely hard. There are harsh weather conditions this year, and there were situations with China, as you know, trade wars that has made things significantly worse for farmers. So the so the government, the Department of Agriculture, uh, uh, um, uh, subsidizes farmers so that they can have a livelihood still. And when you think about this, what if, think about this, Douglas, what if this rich data that John Deere collects, that it shares with um, fertilizer companies to sell fertilizers uh, to, to the farms, uh, uh, crop companies who sell crop companies to farms. What if they share those data also with with the uh, Department of Agriculture? 
If they do that, then the Department of Agriculture is in the business of making sure that the food be, that we all of us, you and I, and so many other Americans who live here, have a healthy food supply. 40 million Americans right now still don't have good food to eat. Uh, actually, that in this country, out of 330 million, 40 million don't eat well. Um, and so the Department of Agriculture is there to make sure that food is on the table for, for all people of, of in this country. So that's the mission of the Department of Agriculture. Right now, they, they, they just give subsidies for, uh, for farmers who, who don't make enough money so that they, they, they continue with a food supply. But what if the Department of Transportation uses all that money, I'm sorry, Department of Agriculture, and becomes part of that in the action field and then optimizes on farm productivity and the profitability of the farm rather than just on surviving, you know, subsidizing so people don't go, companies or families don't go out of business. Then you suddenly... Everybody creates value. Even the Department of Agriculture fulfills its mission of serving the hungry and serving enough food on, for Americans. At the same time, they, they actually help farmers because they improve the productivity of the farm. So that's, that's the matter. So here's the thing. What, what if you, right now, the average farm uh, in America has a productivity of 3,579 kilo per hectare right now. That's very good. Most I mean, America has the most profitable farms. If all farmers, if you do the best you can, the best tractor, the best fertilizer, the best, you do, do the best you can, the maximum you could increase that by 10% on a traditional approach. You know, better farms, better farming and things like that. But if you build that in the action field where everybody works together, um, including the Department of Transportation in that mar those market makers, I call them. If you do that, you can actually increase a double the productivity to 7,779 uh, kilos per hectare. It's such a productivity improvement. And, and the beautiful thing is, is we can only think like that because we are in this third wave that I described earlier of where everything connects. This, this value creation is now possible and it never has been possible before. We are going into that future in an, in an exponential way. That's, that's what it's, what it's all about. So, and so the data, all this shared data that you talk about, yep. which comes about because of the hyperconnectivity, it's like the yep. the data becomes the atomic particle of, <laughs> of the so ecosystem. Well so well said, yeah. And you know, the old days, you know, we, we, it, it's sort of like I say, the old days. It's not that long, and many companies still think like that. They say like, oh. Let's, let's collect data from consumers. Oh, this is our proprietary asset. Oh, you know, we need to put them in data centers. Do you remember they put, they used to put there so extra security to go into data centers that where, where, where nobody can go. There are people with white coats, you know, running these big computers in order because this is our proprietary data, our proprietary customer data. And 2020, we are now in a world where we say, well, it shouldn't be proprietary. We live in a pandemic. Nobody can do it alone. It's not about your own competitive advantage. If we really want to solve the problem in healthcare, in finance, in, 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 in the agriculture, as an example we had, then we need to begin sharing those data and actually solve for some really intractable and difficult industry problems. Do you know that, that of in, in the oil, in, in the, not in the oil field, in the, in the, in the agricultural field, 40% of the water that is used for irrigation, which is a really scarce resource, an expensive one, 40% never reaches the plant. Leakage, inefficiencies in the agricultural system. So, so by, by, by everybody using the data, by participating in this larger interaction field, we can reduce some of those those uh, those uh, inefficiencies that one industry has over the other industry over the other industry in this case it's agriculture and there are many examples in the book of uh, industries or ecosystems that are starting to move in this direction and you also talk about some of the big famous companies that get it wrong they they think they're doing they're starting an interaction field but they're they're really not and then there's a very funny line in the book uh, about how uh, companies will pay lip service to this like uh, 
digital transformation. That's <laughs> not at all yeah, with, exactly. like, like that steel company in uh, Germany that the big yeah. transform digital transformation they had is that they uh, added email. Uh, yeah, exactly. but they yeah, but they yeah, did yeah. go on to uh to uh succeed at, at the yeah. example of what you're talking yeah, about right. one other thing i wanted to ask about uh f- from uh the book is that you 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 write that there are two major factors that will have a significant impact on how companies can create shared value at an exponential rate so in other words you've yep. got to get it going pretty quickly Yep. Uh, you talk about framing and branding. Can you explain yeah. what those two concepts yeah. are? Yeah. Uh, let's stick with um, um, one example in just, just where we John Deere. You know, John Deere founded the company, $30 billion. And he used to say at the beginning, he says, as long as I am around, he said, you know, a, a tractor that is a, has a John Deere name, has these green and yellow colors. As long as I'm around, you know, it's going to be the best technology, the best equipment for farmers in this wide land. Which beyond. still sounds like 99.5% of every manufacturer. Exactly. And, and that's the mindset that the framing that, that John Deere had in mind is, I guarantee the best for my clients, for my farmers. And I tra- I am customer-centric. I treasure, I value farmers. If you look 2020 and look at how John Deere, now the company now speaks to, speaks to and f- how they frame and how they brand their company and what they're all about. They say, our business is about, uh, about serving those close to the land. Serving those close to the land. The tractor is a piece, of course, and they sell $30 billion of beautiful equipment. But that's no longer in the sentence. But no longer in the sentence. It's now, and when you say serving, what does that mean? Well, it's, let's look at KPIs. Let's look at sort of like, how do you measure that? Well, serving means, um, serving means, um, what I'm interested as a farmer. Look, I'm interested. Number one, I'm interested in productivity, right? I need to get better, but I don't really care about productivity. I have a family to feed. I need profits. I need, so profitability per acre or or productivity per, per, per hectare. That's my, that's what I want you to do. Dear John Deere, my serving those close to the land means you need to help me, um, uh, how to improve the productivity of the farm or the profitability per acre that I'm running my, my machines over. So if you do that, you're not going to do that with a better tractor, even if you put more technology on the tractor. If you do that, and if that's what you frame your business, you end up in the interaction field, in my opinion, as I described it. So I just wanted to uh, quote from one uh, section on page 176, which was a very nice uh, summary of this. You say, interaction field companies accomplish what no other corporate form or business model has accomplished so far. They get very close to customers. They truly become a part of their lives, integrate into their activities, and earn the permission to solve major and minor challenges, problems, frictions, and pain points. To do all this, companies considering making a transition to the interaction field model ask themselves fundamental questions. Why does our company or product exist? <laughs> what problems do we or can we help solve? Yeah. Who will collaborate with us to solve these problems? And how are we integrating seamlessly into the lives of our customers? The answer to these questions will open your eyes to latent interaction fields. And the answer always rests at the consumer's doorstep. To become an interaction field company, you must shoulder the burdens of the entire interaction field you wish to be a part of. So, Eric, if readers of the book only took one thing away from it, what would you hope it would be? I think that what, to me, the most important thing is that years ago, a few years ago, just three, five years ago, this would almost always require something that oh, maybe a large company can do or maybe I need some technology. I don't have an expertise. I run just a retail store, let's say. So what has happened is that what I what got me so excited is that the one thing you, t- you can take away is, is that even if you're just a retail store and only have one storefront, let's say, or you're in any kind of business, um, you can... The technology right now is is not only available, 
it's and I describe it in the book how easy it is to to you don't have to buy it anymore you don't have to be a technology expert it's simple technologies you don't have to become an IAI expert so that the, the big takeaway for me is technology now is available to make this happen and it's whether you are a startup or you're a big company a traditional company or you're just a let's say a local retail store you can build an interaction field company and 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 you don't have to think have big grandiose visions and 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 press releases and announcement you can build that step by step and in the book i show simply steps how companies out of nothing literally have done, have been able to to get to that to a point where they they made they made a store uh profitable that would on the local traffic never would have been profitable um, for example and and so that's the beautiful thing it is a it's now it's it's this is now possible at a at a reasonably low cost that everybody can sort of start thinking about that I had no idea about this. I learned so much. And it brought to mind, well, and I, my hope for your book is that, so in the early 2000s, people were starting to read the Clue Train Manifesto, okay? Mm-hmm. And you can read it now, and it's so prescient about where things were going, particularly as it relates to marketing. And I would hope that people will be talking about your book for a long time to come to say, well, that's that was the first or that was one of the books that that really help people understand what an interaction field is thank so. you if you remember douglas this this book uh, i met the one of the one of the authors of the book the other day and he lives here in new york and 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 he says markets are conversations at the time and mm-hmm. that was one of the pieces of glue my money and if you look at my book here there is sort of an extension to that it's not just about conversations consumers are active participants in value creating. Who is creating value in the farm? Farmers do, because farmers contribute those data. Farmers learn and share those data with everyone else. So farmer is not like this other person, this target market that you can push and position and convince as a salesperson to buy another tractor or a service contract to, to get some expensive repair at a local dealer Dear dealership, no farmers actually they are not you know customer centricity. They are not the uh, that the thing that we are positioning and targeting and and, and and make a deal with. No farmers actually are part of the part of our system, part of our company. They are inside now. They are no longer. They are. Not, it's not just a conversation. The farmers actively contribute in order to create value. It's no longer the value is not in the factory. The value is in that interaction, that exchange. What I call that velocity that that takes place between the farmers and John Deere and everybody else in that interaction field. That's where value is created. It's a massive shift of how 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 you how you build a profitable business. Wake up, people. <laughs> so, Eric, what books have most inspired your work and career? You know, I, I, in my career, I, in the early 90s, I, I got very passionate about the world of brands uh, because I felt that it's something magical what Harley Davidson can do and Nike can do. See, do you know that? Nike sells a commodity. It's a rubber shoe. You know, and now they get Michael Jordan and everybody buys Michael Jordan shoes. And I mean, I celebrated Michael Jordan like forever. Yeah. And you wrote uh, Brand Leadership with David Ocker, who's been on the Marketing Book Podcast twice. Exactly. So you need to write yet another book so you can catch up. That's right. right. I can't catch up with him. He's he's faster than me (laughs) with everything. <laughs> Except for mountain biking, I'm faster than him. Oh, ooh. wow! Trash <laughs> yeah, the marketing bike. book podcast. We're getting yeah. a little. Uh, just so the listener knows, we got some PhDs that are you know kind of trash talking, which you know you don't often. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, so brands and and you were fascinated yeah. with that. It, it is fascinating yeah. how you know like uh, why do I own a Harley Davidson? Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. there we go. <laughs> yeah. They got me. Yeah. Yeah, so that was one big, big book that inspired me. That 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 were the people that pioneered that area, and then, and and over the years, I, I was that um, a specific book you're talking about? 
Um, yeah, so that uh, David Archer and I, we met back in the uh, early 90s, and David Archer wrote a book called Managing Brand Equity. And, and, and I realized that, wow, that I called him up and I said, David Archer, please talk to me. I'm this German guy. He goes like, I, I you know, German guy that, that uh, is at the beginning, beginning of a career. And I just think that this book is such a, just a, home run you know work with me work with me work with me and we worked for 25 years uh, uh, that's together. great and you know when i lived in new york at one point i worked at j walter thompson and i was the yeah. account executive on the listerine account i first saw that book sitting on the desk of the brand manager at listerine uh, david ocker's book managing brand equity well, I tell you, uh, there was a day uh, where David Archer uh, introduced me to Peter Ceausescu or something is his name, the CEO of JWT. And uh, he had an office on Madison Avenue and he says, he says, look, um, David is an academic. He's not going to, he's going to write more books, but you, you, you could, you could, I, I offer you an office here and you build a brand, brand strategy uh, business at JWT. That was an offer I had on the table back then. And, but you, but you didn't take it? No, I didn't. Uh, well, he didn't mention that I had worked there, so maybe that was you know <laughs> that, that could have pushed you over the, uh, over the edge. Yeah, it would have been good fun. Yeah. Know, so, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Um, uh, in the in the upcoming books here, oh, you know, I I I have a, 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 I read a few books. You know, I found um, I found that there is a um, um, uh, a book that I've just been reading uh, with uh, from Rita McGrath called "Seeing Around the Corner." And I found that interesting because because she wrote that book last year and um, and I just read it now and and she said that there are these inflection points in business and 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 you need to recognize these inflection points and she she describes one of the inflection points also the the way this new way of business this new way of creating value but I think that's really it's an uh, the inflection point idea is an old idea from from Intel if you remember uh, Andy Grove talked mm -hmm. about it but 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 apart from that i thought it was interesting because because we live in a pandemic and uh, you know so many businesses where, where you say uh, are now facing this challenge where we say is the pandemic just a very uh, very deep recession like we had it in 2008 or or downturn in the economy or are there some permanent shifts is there an inflection point of how we do business and and i think that she hit the nail with this one and um, and and how to figure out how do you can see basically that things are changing and they're not going to come back and i think that's that's something we need to figure out in in, in any business we are right now that's, oh, that's why I like that book. Yeah, seeing around corners, how to spot inflection points in business before they happen, and I see that the late Clayton Christensen wrote the forward to it. Yeah, wow, I have to. Yeah. I definitely have to to check out that. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable and uh, your your company site and your personal site and your LinkedIn profile. And I hope that people will uh, reach out and connect with you. And and thank you for being. Uh, a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone, which is hyper-connected, and you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Interaction Field, The Revolutionary New Way to Create Shared Value for Businesses, Customers, and Society. The author is Eric Yoakumstaller. Eric, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of, for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Podcast.